Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Legendarium Podcast. Make sure you take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes and now on Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook and check out our fantastic website at thelegendariumpodcast.com. Welcome to the Legendarium. It's the third installment of the Legendarium's Heroes of Sci-Fi podcast series. This week, I, Robot, the collection of nine short stories by Isaac Asimov, Craig, Ryan, Todd, and Ken will discuss their favorite stories and some of the predictions that come from them, as well as, of course, some of the themes and characters discussed within. Enjoy! Welcome back! Welcome back! I kind of want to come up with a a welcome back theme song so I can sing to you guys. Welcome back! No, 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 Todd, I want to come up with a welcome back theme song. Oh, I'm sorry. Come on, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> you can't come up with a better Welcome Back theme song than Welcome it Back It is Connor. the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us today, everyone. I am Craig Hanks, and uh, I have my collection of nerds with me uh, once again. So straight across from me, at the corner of Too Old for Comic Books Street and Too Young to Get Rid of My Comic Books Avenue, it's Todd Wenty. Both of those describe me all so well. <laughs> And I once got lost in his eyes and had to be let out by a most delightful wood nymph. It's Ken Johnson. The wood nymph is still looking for the door. And he's so creative, even his flatulence has artistic value. It's Ryan Bruckman. (laughs) (laughs) So how are you guys doing this week? Did you enjoy uh, iRobot? I loved iRobot again. Yeah. Yep. So, Todd, you've read it before. I read it before, and I read it when the movie first came out, when, when the movie came out with Will Smith, and was, like many people, watching it and saying to myself, this movie has nothing to do with the book. Right. So, you went back and read it again for this one. I did, and I've enjoyed it again. Very nice. The, well, um, do you guys want a, a quick synopsis so we th- can get started on it? I think that would be appropriate, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so, let's see... Um, you know, I thought it was interesting. First of all, we did a novella, then a serialized novel, and now we're talking about a, another rather unconventional book in iRobot, right? It's not a novel. It's a collection of it's, so, a collection of related short stories. iRobot is a collection of nine short stories by Isaac Asimov, all loosely related by their exploration of the three laws of robotics, which are, number one, can you guys tell me? Number one. No robot, robot can, can, can harm a human, human okay, well, okay, through inaction. Yes. I really made a mistake here. To come to harm. Uh, Ken, what's the first rule of robotics? I just told you. Okay, say it again. No robot may harm a human or through inaction allow a human to come to harm. Nice. Very good. Todd, number two. A robot must protect itself. Uh, no. That's oh, is that number three? three? I always get okay. two and three confused. Thanks, Todd. <laughs> so, You're welcome, Ryan. Todd, what's number two? Uh, no robot may... I can't remember. A too. robot must obey the orders, orders, orders of a human, human beings. Being. That's okay, right. Unless... Like Ryan's got it pulled up. What's number three? A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. Right, and we should that was point the out that this second could not uh, conflict, conflict with, with the first. The first. Yeah. Uh, anyway, these short stories were written mostly through the 1940s, then compiled and published as iRobot in 1950. To give the stories some sort of cohesive narrative, uh, Asimov wrote in a framework wherein Dr. Calvin, chief robo-psychologist at U.S. Robots and Mechanical Men, Inc., is relating the tales to a reporter in the 21st century. The nine stories generally ask questions about what it means to be truly emotional, intelligent, and above all, moral. 
It was published into a world whose nerves were already pretty frayed by the mechanization of warfare, genetic modification of organisms, and especially by the nuclear bomb. So you add in the idea of robotic artificial intelligence, and you have a collection of stories that captured many imaginations and turned others off to science fiction forever. And that's that's iRobot. A lot of people it freaked a lot of people out. So a lot of people didn't want to didn't want to worry about it. So we remember it now that just by virtue of the fact that it's still around and still being read, uh, it's still being talked about by people who enjoy it. But uh, in its time, not universally loved. No, in fact, one of the things that's interesting about that book and about some of the other pieces of fiction that Isaac Asimov came up with later on in his career is that it polarized the entire population mm-hmm. during that period of time about what science fiction could explore, even while he's exploring the idea that we can build things to make sure we protect our humanity rather than build things that will immediately destroy us. Right. Um, well, let's let's chat a little bit. Uh, uh, well, uh, actually, hang on. Before we chat a little bit about the nine short stories, let's learn a wee bit about Isaac Asimov. Uh, Todd. Go ahead with your little bio that you've got for us. You bet. Isaac Asimov was an American author and professor of biochemistry at Boston University, best known for his works of science fiction and his popular science books. Asimov was a prolific writer, wrote and edited more than 500 books and an estimated 90,000 letters and postcards, postcards referring to small uh, epigrams. His books have been published in nine of the ten categories of the Dewey Decimal System. So I'm not sure which one he left out. I probably should have looked into that. He is a Russian-American. Parents were born in, uh, or he was born in Russia around 1920, January 2nd of 1920. We're not really sure on the birth date. They didn't have, most of the things that I looked for did not have a clear date for his birth. I I believe when they came to America, um, they fudged the records. His parents fudged the records on purpose for school purposes, if I'm remembering correctly, something like that. It was a. It, it was about the process of coming into the country. Yeah. They wanted to make sure that he wasn't that he was respected for where he was at. So he had an official birthday in the U.S., but that was apparently a we, lie. It could so. be anywhere between that and I believe 1918. Mm-hmm. So he could have been two years older than he really was. Uh, he was the. Uh, longtime president, a uh, longtime vice president of Mensa International, albeit reluctantly, as he describes some members of the organization as brain proud and aggressive about their IQs. <laughs> nice. Ain't that the truth? I know Take a that, few smarty pants. I know a few members of Mensa, and, and I they're all sitting at this table, ladies um, and gentlemen. At least one of them is. Uh, the interesting thing is that Asimov is widely considered... The Why are we all looking around at each other now? <laughs> <laughs> Asimov is widely considered a master of hard science fiction, and along with Robert A. Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke was considered one of the big three of science fiction writers during his lifetime and during the lead-up into the 1970s, which is where space opera and science fiction really explode into the public consciousness and become part of pop culture. So, I haven't decided yet if we need to give oh, credit by to the Wikipedia, way, but uh, thanks, Wikipedia. Isaac Asimov died in 1992. Oh, that's right. It wasn't oh. that long ago. No, he's stayed with us through a lot of the process of seeing his novels become part of the public consciousness and mm-hmm. seeing science fiction become part of pop culture. But before he saw iRobot become a film with Will Smith. And destroy all that he had put together. <laughs> I enjoy that movie. So, I, I was going to say, iRobot was not such a bad movie. No, it's fine. But it's it just, is not. It's just it's not, not iRobot. Not based on yeah. Isaac Asimov. It was based on an idea 
presented within one of the short stories. One of the short stories, yeah. and it becomes it becomes a really interesting movie. I think of all of the stories that they could have picked, all of the ideas that they could have picked, they picked the right one to make a movie out of. So oh yeah, tell tell us a little bit, Todd, then about that story, uh, where it falls in line, and and what what the idea of the story is in Asimov's book uh, versus what we see. In the film. The difference between those two really is that in the movie, in the film, it focuses on the action of the process. It focuses on the detective more than it focuses on the laws of robotics and how the laws of robotics have to be obeyed in order to make sure that things can move forward. We get a, we get a sense in the film that... I'm trying very hard to not make a certain sound. We, we find a sense <laughs> in the film that there's a, a process or, or that there's, a, there's an investigative process and a consciousness, a public consciousness that we're, that we're very much afraid of and that is reflective of what Asimov was meeting in his lifetime when he produced iRobot. We're still meeting that today. We still meet that with, with a lot of our movies about artificial intelligence, about robotic intelligence, about robots taking over the world. But that never really surfaces in the story that we're dealing with in the book. In the book, it's more about how does the how does a an individual get around the laws of robotics to get a robot to do what it needs to do, and still be able to, to follow those its, laws to complete its task, and still well, be able to follow. Just those as laws. a as a quick aside, anybody who's wondering what sound uh, <sighs> Todd is trying to avoid. We have a bet currently that whoever says um the most times during this episode will have to review Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, so you can all look forward to a very, very awkward review coming soon from one of us. Um, most anyway, likely it'll be Craig. <laughs> let's hope not. Uh, and Ryan will be going along just to make sure that Craig actually watches the film. <laughs> I was, I was going to say... <laughs> He'll keep his eyes on me the whole time. I was going to say, by the way, in the... Which would be super creepy. Excuse me. In the, in the books, the mistrust of robotics or mistrust of artificial intelligence is indirectly hinted at in that all of the robotic stuff that we see it takes place off of earth yes because they won't yes. the the people society won't allow them to test all the robotics on earth won't allow them to exist on earth right and a lot of that comes from we see that in that first story reflected in the first story and we see it later on reflected in some of the other stories about the ideas that these robots these machines have such capability for doing things that human beings cannot compete with that we then say well if we can't compete with them we better not have them here send them someplace where we can't be so we send them to mars we send them to mercury we send them to places that are so inhospitable to human life that we get away from it of and course, then they just build a, a base there and from which to launch their attack, right? Exactly. Dun, dun, um, dun, dun. <laughs> I did find it interesting that Asimov comes up with these three laws, the three rules of four, I guess, if you count the zeroth uh, rule, right? You guys know about this? Um, and then he spends each story figuring out how to break them. You know, it's... <laughs> It's not, it is very interesting to me that it's not about humans necessarily and their relation to these three laws. It's what happens to the robots because you made these three laws for them. You know what I mean? Asimov introduces an idea that winds up showing up throughout a lot of science fiction. In fact, later on in the science fiction universe, in Star Trek universe, we talk about the positronic brain that Data has. And Asimov introduces the idea of a positronic brain, a positronic network in these early stories. And so tell us more about this positronic network. The positronic network simulates 
a brain function. It is designed to replicate or, or in, imitate the way a human brain's neural pathways work to learn information. Positronic brains are designed to imitate that, not to be, not to be like that, but to imitate it and to allow it to learn, allow the robot to learn series of tasks, series of motions, series of performances within the context of the laws. They're not designed to give somebody consciousness. They're not designed to give an, an individual consciousness. They're designed to allow an individual to learn independently of a programmer. You start the program, let the program run, and the positronic network stores that information. Of course, so in, data's, in data's case, eventually we try to find out how we can give it give it emotions as well. Mm -hmm. But Asimov's not concerned with that. That comes later. That comes later as we explore this issue of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be sentient? With Asimov, he's more concerned about the logic. What does it mean to be a robot? What does it mean to be driven by logic and to be driven by certain criteria of logic that are so restraining that they force you to lose control of the other functions that are going on. So, so if he's not concerned about emotions, uh, why do we need robo-psychologists in this story? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Susan Calvin shows up uh, <laughs> in an interesting... And it's, it's always made me laugh a little bit when I, when I read about this, the introduction. And it's uh, this mysterious author asking questions of Dr. Calvin. And I'm sitting there saying to myself... Why doesn't he ask her whether or not she and Will Smith hooked up? You know what I mean? And it's because, of course, oh, yeah, that would never have happened in the book. But, of course, we all kind of wonder about that at the end of the movie. Her job is to figure out what goes wrong with the positronic network, what it is, what, what commands, what processes that are logically incompatible that drive a robot to do crazy things. And it's fascinating. Agreed. I agree. Ken, did you have a favorite uh, from among these nine stories? I didn't necessarily have a favorite. I, I'm trying to. I'm. I, I as I sit here, I'm going. Which one did I really like? Although I did, as I was reading it, I, it's been so long since I've read. I I was going to say the nine books, but read the book. I mean, it was it was junior high school last time I read it, which was a million years ago, and I think Isaac Asimov actually gave me the copy himself, but. <laughs> Yeah, of course he did. Yeah. Todd liked that joke. He got his Mickey laugh from that one. <laughs> hey, at least it wasn't the whistle laugh, right? No. That's true. I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. But in reading them again, I did notice as I was reading which one the movie was based off of, which was the uh, Lost Little Robot, or I think that's what it was called, where they were going and finding the robot that, that had, had taken the, off. It had the modified. Uh, three rules mm -hmm. for purposes that they explained in the book. And, and it had taken off because one scientist got mad and said, get lost. And so literally it went and got lost. You know what? Speaking of the movie, it just occurred to me that uh, these books would have been a lot neater if um, all of the good robots glowed blue and all of the bad robots <laughs> glowed, glowed red. red. How convenient, yeah. yeah. It was really nice. Really easy I did, for Will Smith. I did find it... <laughs> exactly. I, that's one of those things. If like, you could see what's going on in this room, you would see the look that I'm giving Craig of, really? We're going to go there? Okay, <laughs> let's go there. Sorry. It was it was neat seeing the names from the book used in the movie. Well, I guess the names from the movie and where they came from in the book, but anyway. Yeah. So let me tell you, the, the one that I liked, um, it's going to make it sound like I didn't read the book because it's the first one. I really like the, the story Robbie. 
uh, where the the robot, to give you a quick rundown, the robot is a caretaker for a little girl, um, and uh, at first her parents are really excited because this robot is cutting edge. It's uh, it's um, uh, very cool. Oh, duck on it. <laughs> That's only three in I that said, sentence. I said, I said uh, a few times. I just quoted myself, so that's okay. Um, anyway, dang it. <laughs> this is going terribly. So the robot... Ladies and gentlemen, if Craig gets a divorce because of being forced to go see Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> you'll know it was because of this episode. Um, dang it. <laughs> that train of thought has derailed. It really has. The parents got the got the robot very excited about it, but then pretty soon public sentiment turns against uh, robotics, and so the mother wants to give up the robot, and she does. But the little girl who has had this robot nanny uh, slash best friend is very upset, and so uh, her dad concocts a plan while they're on vacation in the U.S. to go uh, see this robot again. Um, and the, unbeknownst to the mother, right? Unbeknownst to the mother, thereby. Uh, creating a situation in which uh, the the mother is won over once again by the robot and allows it to come home, and it's very nice. That one really it's, is a very cute. story. It's just cute. I there's not much more to it than that. I just I liked the cute story. Little girl and her robot. It's like a puppy dog story, right? Anyway, there yeah. now there are some other stories that I liked for other reasons, but that's the one that kind of made me go, oh. It's it's a great starting place. Yeah, it's an interesting starting place. It's a it's a very human story. And you know what it is partly for me is that uh, you know we talk about I I, I joked about the robo psychologist before. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I am much more interested in sociology than psychology, and so the okay. idea of of this family and that society in general uh, being very excited about this new technology and then turning on it very quickly and you know the the aspects of oops of groupthink involved with that yeah you know, I like that stuff so those aspects of the story um, I enjoyed quite a bit and I get a kick out of the psychology stuff so yeah. I understand I, and and we approach it from different perspectives yeah that's not allowed though mine is the only legitimate one uh, says the man who just said uh dang it <laughs> I am really bad at this. I think he really wants to go he, see Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> he's just looking for I think he's got now. a big uh put in the middle of his phone there that he's reading from. <laughs> he was pretty quick to to sign on to that. Uh, I just yeah, I just said it to to sign on to that wager. Did I make it up? I don't yeah, it was you. I think you made it up. We were originally going to have somebody review SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, gosh. And I think that would actually be more torturous. Instead, well, that's maybe frankly. maybe what we should do, especially if it's going to save your marriage, because it looks like you're in the lead on this one. Well, we'll talk about that. Um, anyway, dang it. So another, <laughs> this is uh, this is becoming the defining feature of this episode. How unfortunate. <laughs> How unfortunate. You know, you asked if we you asked what stories we had. Each of the stories I liked for different reasons. I like Asimov's approach to this. It's a very high level, high intellectual level about these logic problems. Knowing that he's a member of Mensa, knowing that he spends his time with other people who are very impressed with their IQs and that are always about the... I don't know if any of you have ever looked at any of the Mensa test books and all those kinds of things. They're always very, very interesting and generally take a little bit more time to figure out than they're really worth. But as Asimov goes through this, the problems that he creates are so mundane in the way that we as human beings would look at it, but 
he creates those problems and shows just how difficult it is to resolve those kinds of dilemmas for something that is bound by logical heuristics that are so narrowly defined and so carefully constructed. We don't take things, we, we don't ex accept sometimes or don't understand sometimes how truly advanced our thinking processes are. And I think that was a big part of what he was trying to say in these books. And later on when he gets into Foundation and he talks about the some of his later works where he's talking about the Spanning Galactic Empire and the emphasis that robots have on it, we, we see a an evolution of this idea that robots are bound. They are bound to do certain things and they can only do those certain things. They do not have that spark of genius that human beings have and that's what makes us different. So interesting to me that during his lifetime, his stories made people more afraid of robotic processes than less. Than less, yeah, absolutely. Because for me, it makes me say, well, of course, if we build that piece into the Cylon technology, Cylons will never turn on us and we'll never have to worry about going into the stars and seeking for the 13th colony. Oh, unless there's a loophole. Because there's always a unless loophole. Unless they evolve. Always a loophole. It's always a we loophole. should call him Ironic Asimov. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, so, robotics by the way, aren't the only thing Asimov thought of. Uh, this was one of my favorite things about reading the book, was seeing some of the other technologies that he concocted in his imagination and and are coming to pass, some yeah. of them. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, mining colonies on Mercury yep. would be uh, amazing. We well, First, we need to get mining colonies on the moon, which I think is... I probably won't see before I die, but maybe my grandkids will. Uh, I, I don't know. I think you'd be surprised. The maybe, idea of yeah, the concept of mining asteroids keeps coming up. Right. Yeah, he did that. Who knows? Uh, or how about solar power fed back to a planet's surface via microwave? That's one that I've heard come up a few times in not science fiction, but science, real science speculation that uh, if we want to solve our energy problems, our fossil fuel dependency, it's not going to be by blanketing the Gobi Desert in solar panels. It's going to be by launching solar panels panels into space and sending them into orbit. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I liked that idea a lot. I thought it was brilliant. And I thought, why isn't anybody exploring that right now? Oh, I'm sure lots of people are exploring it, but uh, well, you try to do it. But why isn't it feasible? <laughs> Okay, I'll build one in my backyard. <laughs> There's lots of levels that make that unfeasible at this current time, Large, yeah. largely because no one is willing to... Asimov was also... One of the things that's interesting about Asimov, he was also the president of the Humanist Foundation. The idea behind humanism, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is one that transcends religion it goes past all of the things that have been held or, or that we've used in the past as it more our, or less worships humans our, our our position and says human beings can solve all things if they will put their minds to them right and the idea that we can construct those kinds of solutions is very much a humanistic idea uh, something that gene roddenberry ah, dang it i said one something that gene roddenberry <laughs> went through and and described as well the tricky part is finding the funding and the, the current the funding funding i thought you, okay never mind and currently our funding on those on those on levels that would require that are locked into the fossil fuels industries depending on how you want to look at the political system there's a lot of money tied up in those environments that could be distributed that in isaac asimov's brain 
if we were smart and if we were really solving the problem, we would put that money into solving the problem rather than into continuing the problem as we are right now. And into taxes, lousy communists. <laughs> He he was a he was a product of coming out of that in, of that environment, and so he like. There are others of his time. Uh, Ayn Rand was a, a contemporary that came out of Russia during this period of time. Also, very much a humanist, more of a logical positivist uh, or pro- positivist positivism. Yeah, she was a positivist, and let's, so let's, that is not a word I've ever heard her let's regarding pretend, Ayn Rand. Let's pretend we're smart. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Which one of us was the Mensa again? (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at Craig. I think I'm on my Mensa cycle right now. Uh, Oh. (laughs) Ryan, I just killed Ryan. He's actually dead. (laughs) Ryan didn't drop the mic, but he did drop his head into the mic. That was what all of you out there heard as that... Come on. I'm sorry. Awesome. I will I will take that away. But I will say that that the United States was a, a place where people came because they believed that this was a place that would solve some of the problems they were escaping from. And it would. If only. It is. It has solved so many problems. And it is. Yeah. The difficulty is not always the the technology it's the scale of the technology right. and that requires the funding. And the funding. Like In Soviet said. Russia, robot eyes you. What? <laughs> what? Really? Oh. Okay. Uh, dang it. Quite a country. Oh, okay. So favorite, another favorite story of mine, Runaround. Runaround's good. The one, this is oh, the yeah. one where they had the mining colony on Mercury. Oh, because Partly because of something we've talked about with previous books, uh, whether it was other sci-fi series books that we've talked about or before. Visuals. Visuals are so much fun. And the two scientists that fly, they're going, hang on, we sent this robot to go gather up this stuff, and he's not back yet. What is going on? So they're flying to wherever they're going. They come across the the plane of sight, and what do they see? They see the robot drunkenly stumbling around this uh, this lake of I, I selenium. selenium. Selenium, yeah, and, and trying to figure out what's going on. I just love that visual of this drunk robot. Uh, that he created, and the, the reason he's drunk, he's stumbling around because he can't decide between the the what is it the, the first and first second and second rules. rule mm-hmm. uh, or first and second laws, which to obey, and so he's it, it, you know it's the whole does not compute thing, and and instead of self destructing, he just stumbles back and forth, back and forth, running around this lake. Love get a, that. Get close to the lake. Get away from the lake. Get close to the lake. Get away from the lake. And it's so it's really great how. Uh, and, and this is something that we could, if we brought somebody like Brandon Sanderson in, he'd have a great time describing how you write these laws. So for him, it would be laws of allomancy, or mm-hmm. for, for Asimov, it's the laws of robotics. Where you write these laws, you have your characters following them, nothing can break them. Suddenly, they have a problem, and they need to manipulate the laws in order to solve a problem. How do you manipulate something that's designed not to be manipulated? And and so what does the what does the scientist do? He places himself in harm so that uh, that will override the uh, the problems that are going on in this robot's uh, what did you call it? The what kind of thinking? Positronic brain. Yeah, and uh, he goes and saves the scientist, and then they get there from an idiom and uh, and leave. Selenium. Selenium. There you go. Anyway, I love that story. That was fun. <laughs> I get a kick out of seeing how as Isaac's human characters 
respond to all of the problems that are popping up. The humans that are supposedly years advanced are very relatable. They're very, they're, they're very bland as far as their time frame. They're relatable in any time frame. I, mm-hmm. I, bland isn't really the right word. Uh, general. general, Generally relatable, I guess, is a better term for that. So that no matter when you're reading it, you know, I'm reading it now, and I felt very much that these people could be guys I know down the street. They're not, they're not buffoons. They're not super scientific. They're not using techno babble to confuse us all. Isaac Asimov is stuck very closely to science that we understand and is having these human beings deal with these problems the way that human beings deal with problems. But was, but was I the only one that found Donovan and Powell annoying? No, I loved them. Oh, man, I wanted to smack them both. <laughs> really? <laughs> I really did. I loved them. But much like a lot of the people that live down the street. <laughs> Well, there are, uh, obviously there are nine stories. We could go through them all, but we won't. Uh, why don't we look at kind of wrapping this up a little bit? We'll hey, say listener, a few more how things. how about you read the nine stories but, and tell us which one you liked best? Hey, there you go. Yeah. Nice. Facebook.com slash the Legendarian Podcast. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay. Ken, settle down, man. You are just chomping at the bit. Uh, I do want to, to talk. fast he could read something. You brought up an interesting point, Todd, when you talk about his humanism. Because in the story Reason, he really takes a, a swipe at religion. Mm-hmm. When the robots are manning this space station that's beaming the, the uh, solar power via microwave down to the planet's surface, he discovered that there's a scientist that goes up there, a team that goes up there, and discovers that these robots have created their own religion (laughs) and they no longer regard humans as important the only thing that's important is keeping the dials and switches in in exactly the right position to ensure that that they don't deviate they don't even think about what they are providing they don't think about the energy they don't think about the solar power all they're focused on is these little dials it's all in faithful accordance to the will of the maker the the master the master the master yeah they call it the master and i so he he uses in this case he's using sci-fi i feel like to put forth his humanist Mm -hmm. uh, agenda he talks about the pragmatism of religion so and this is something that's very common now for atheist apologists of religion they will, uh, so, well, to get back to the story, the scientists, they think that the robot's religion is completely daft and crazy. But in the end, they, they allow them to keep it and wonder, how do we spread this to other robot colonies? Because, hey, this is really useful. This, uh, shall we call it the opiate of the masses? <laughs> wonder when opiate, that phrase was going to show up. The opiate of the robots? This is very useful. They're working really together, to really well together as a team, thanks to this uh, religion that they've concocted. We really need to get this spread around. It's a good thing we're too smart for it. <laughs> anyway, that uh, it, it that rang very familiar in my in my ears as I read it. Asimov was far seeing. Well, and and kind of a jerk. Well, yeah. But. And a re- and a reaction to his environment. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I mean, we're all jerks at some point, right? So in uh, our that own wasn't way. where I was going with that, but I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a, a tendency to dismiss religion because it is not objective. 
we cannot observe, we cannot quantify it with those tools, even if the outcomes of it are good. And it, there was a really interesting, and, and although this isn't Asimov, this is Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a little foreword to one of his books where he said, and to all of my friends who practice religion, I guess I owe you an apology. After 40 years of study and research, we find that you lead happier, better lives, and you live longer than most of the rest of us that are realist people. Congratulations. I still don't get it. I think Asimov <laughs> would kind of relate to that, although yeah. he only lived 72 years. He didn't live the 160 that you know I think he was probably planning on. But it's a, it's a really interesting thing that it is dismissed and yet it still occupies so much of our time, so much of our literature. What do we do about it? Do we keep it? Do we throw it away? Do we, do we persecute it? Do we embrace it? Do we spread it? Do we use it? Uh, religion continues to be a very critical piece of what it means to be human. This is one of the places... Or robot, apparently. This is one of the places where Asimov deals with the idea, what does it mean to be enlightened? Are we enlightened? Are robots bound by everything that's going on and if you are bound to a religion have you not made it to the point of being a true human being yet well that sounded like a final thought from todd unless you have more ken do you have any final thoughts not that i can todd think of is Ryan, so smart todd is so smart You're, he's so mensatic uh all right well Men Perhaps there you go. Nice. That's an actual word. Can you just use an? You used an actual word. I use big words. <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, a quick round robin. Do you suggest to somebody uh, who's never read science fiction or who is looking into Isaac Asimov? Do you go read iRobot? Absolutely. It's it's legendary. I, for lack of a better word, it it is one of the foundation. Uh, because <laughs> he wrote Foundation. I get you. <laughs> it, it's one of the foundation pieces in modern science fiction literature. I, you've got to read it. Todd? Absolutely. Ryan? Yes. For no other reason than you get the basis of the three laws. There you go. Yeah. I would say go for it. It's fun. It's sometimes funny. It's sometimes comedic. It's sometimes touching. Very good writing and uh, and, and very good stories to go along with it. So thank you, everybody, for reading iRobot with us. We will be back in just a few days with our midweek update uh, on some nerd news. So pop in on Wednesday or Thursday. You'll hear us uh, show up again in your news feed. We, and you'll also find out which one of us is going to have to review Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, I think that's been well established. Uh, you'll have to find out. You'll find out when Craig is supposed to review Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey. And we will talk to you all later. Thank you. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Legendarium Podcast. Make sure you take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes and now on Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook and check out our fantastic website at thelegendariumpodcast.com.